Yes, Lord, we confess together today that we <clears throat> need an anchor. God, we need something that will hold our lives firm, safe, steadfast. And Lord, we know that there's nothing in this world that can hold us. There's nothing in this world that is faithful. But that's why, Lord, we sing this morning. We sing of your great faithfulness. That we put our trust in Jesus because he is the firm, steadfast, never-moving anchor. God, we long this morning for you to draw us deeper and deeper into trust, deeper and deeper into faith, deeper and deeper into actually seeing and knowing and believing that, yes, Lord, that throughout all the ages, you have always been faithful, that every word you've ever spoken has come true and will come true. Lord, we open our hearts this morning to your word. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Speak to us. Help us to see you. And God, lead us to your son, Jesus, who is the solid rock. Lead us to your son, son Jesus, who is the firm foundation that we need. Use your word in powerful ways in our lives. We trust you, God. We open our hearts to you now. We humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you're taking a seat, I want to invite you to open up to Psalm 105, which you've already heard read today. Psalm 105. And we'll spend most of our time there. Uh, it's no surprise to us, right, who are here, that uh, Myrtle Beach is one of the fastest growing places in the U.S., according to some metrics. Uh, we feel the growth. In fact, I would bet, I would have a feeling if we kind of went around the room and raised our hands or whatever, uh, there's a pretty good chance that a good many of us uh, would have moved here in the last, I don't know, three to five years. Uh, if you go on different home buying websites, uh, you know, places you can go and kind of see all the homes that are out there available, uh, you can learn different information about the potential homes and the area of the homes that you, you might find yourselves in. Obviously, there's the, the basic things like uh, the square footage of the home and, you know, how many bedrooms and, uh, you know, how many bathrooms and that sort of thing, whether it has a new roof or, a, or an old air conditioner and that sort of thing. You can, you, you can see the basic information, uh, but you can also actually learn a little bit more about not only your home, but also the area that, that you might uh, be choosing to live in. Uh, for example, uh, if you go on one of these sites, you can see what schools your kids would go to if you bought that house. Uh, you can find out what restaurants and, you know, attractions and, and, and shops are, are in the area. Uh, you, you can find out a lot about the, the place in which you might be uh, buying a home, whether or not it's a place you can walk or ride a bike, or if it's the kind of place you're probably actually going to need a car. Or, uh, the, the, I even saw on one site, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a climate risk section. You know, is this going to be a place where you're going to get something like a hurricane? Is this a place where you're going to have flooding? Is this a place where there's going to be droughts? Uh, you can find out lots of information about the home and about the area that you might live in. And here's a question I have. Why do these things matter to us? Why don't we just pick a house at random? You know, why don't we just go on some sort of auto-generated thing, push a button, and out pops, you know, a house or condo, whatever, and that's where we have to live. Why do we care well, the reason we care is because the location that we find ourselves in actually determines the quality of life that we live. The area, the surroundings that we find ourselves in actually has a really big bearing on what kind of life we experience. 
uh, last two weeks, we navigated through Psalm 104. And this is what we saw in Psalm 104. We saw that God created this world. God, through his design, he crafted a wonderful place. And it was a place that not only he had made, but he even put a special place there for the human beings that he had created to live in a garden, the Garden of Eden, where every need they had was abundantly supplied, where they got to live in God's presence, a place of peace, a place of safety, a, a, peace, a place where they could flourish. But then a tragedy happened. The people whom God had made to live in the place that he had made, they turned away from him. They rebelled against God. They tried to seek provision in their own way rather than trusting what God had given them. And because they turned away from this God, because they turned away from the one who had made them, they could no longer live in the place that he had prepared for them. They were kicked out of the garden uh, with no way to return. And I think that in a way this helps explain our lives. So you and I, we were made to live in a place, but we're no longer there. And so in each of us, in each of our hearts, there's this longing for home. There's this longing to find a place where we can rest, where we can be secure, where we can flourish. Deep down, we long for that place, and yet no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we get on the internet or watch HGTV or whatever it is and try to craft these perfect little paradises for ourselves, no matter how hard we try, it's always just a little bit elusive. We can't quite get back home. Things break, tragedy strikes, and then eventually we die and we're snatched away. Uh, here's what we're going to do over the next two weeks. We're going to spend two weeks in Psalm 105. But instead of covering the first half this week and then the second half next week, what we're going to do is we're going to take it more in sort of a logical sequence. See, Psalm 105 tells us that God actually has a plan to bring his people back into the place that he made for them. God actually has a plan to fix what we have broken and so the question that we're going to be asking this morning is, how do we get to heaven? And then the question that we're going to ask next week is, how should we respond? So this morning, the question, how do we get to heaven? Why do I say that that's the question? Well, look down in your Bible with me at verses 7 through 11 of this psalm. This is what it says. It says, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, now this is the part I want you to key in on, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance." Uh, we've all, all probably heard the phrase, the promised land, right? Well, the promised land is just a novel phrase for a land that God had promised to Abraham and to his descendants. 
And this land, this promised land, plays a central role all throughout the Bible. See, the Bible starts, like we saw last week in Psalm 104, the Bible starts with God preparing a place for his people. And then the fall happens, but God shows up to Abraham, and and he promises Abraham a place. And it gives us hope that maybe, just maybe, re-entrance back into God's place might be available to us. And then if you go all the way to the end of the Bible, what do you see? The end of the Bible is God's people in God's place living in his presence forever. And so that place, that final place where we spend eternity with God, that place is what we call heaven. Heaven is the place that God has prepared for his people to live in his presence forever. So here's our question today. How do we get to that place? How do we get to heaven? First this morning, the first answer this this psalm gives is that we will get to heaven through gracious protection. We will get to heaven through gracious protection. Uh, We live in a merit-based world. We sort of naturally think that God loves the people who are morally good in their life, and God hates the people who are a little deviant and off and don't follow his rules. That's how we naturally think this works. And so we sort of on a base level automatically believe that the way somebody gets into heaven is based on how they live their life. And Psalm 105 completely blows that myth to smithereens. Uh, Look at verses 12 to 15. We'll start there. It says, When they were... Few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another, people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that God did not choose the nation of Israel because they were great and mighty. Instead, it was the exact opposite. God chose Israel, because they were so small and so insignificant, in fact, when God chose them, it was just one man and his wife. And he was 100 years old, and she was barren. And God came to him and said, I'm going to give you a son. That son is going to become a great nation, and I'm going to give you a place as your inheritance to live forever. Um, in Romans chapter 4, Paul gives us a little indication of how funny this is. Talking about Abraham, who God chose to start this project with. He says, he did not weaken in faith. Listen to this. When he considered his own body, Paul inserts this comment, which was as good as dead since he was 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Paul tells us that Abraham was as good as dead. He was 100 years old. His wife was barren. And God said, yeah, I'm going to start a nation, and I'm going to choose you. Not exactly who we would have picked. Uh, Growing up, my dad uh, coached our baseball team a few years, like through the Little League, you know, time. And uh, every year, uh, they would kind of come around, and they would have these little tryout things, you know, where kids would go out and throw and catch and hit the ball and all that, and... 
then the coaches would get an opportunity to sort of select players and that sort of thing. And everybody was always so shocked by my dad's philosophy. Uh, he would always choose the worst players first. But I think it just kind of showed his genius as a Little League coach because somehow our team always ended up being one of the best. When God chooses, he does not choose the way that you and I usually choose. It's not that somehow one person sort of brings something to the table that the other person doesn't. It's not that somehow one person has done a little better with their life than another one. In fact, with God's choosing, it might just be the exact opposite. If there's anything that we can point our finger to and say, why does he choose? It might just be that he intentionally chooses the weakest, the worst, the people who have totally bombed their life. Why? So that when he rescues them and gives them an inheritance, it will be obvious that it was by grace and grace alone. But it's not just that the way God initially chose Abraham that points to his grace. Uh, it's also what happened after God chose Abraham that shows us his grace. Uh, verses 13 to 15 here that we just read, they allude to a narrative from Abraham's life that you can go maybe later this afternoon read in Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20 if you're interested. Uh, not once, but twice. When Abraham entered a city out of fear that the king of that city might kill him because of his wife, he told the king that his wife was actually his sister. And both times the king takes his wife into her palace while scared little Abraham watches his wife be brought into another man's house. Needless to say, Abraham did not win husband of the year. Why was Abraham so afraid? God had come to him and said, I'm promising you a land. I'm promising you a son. I'm promising you a whole nation. So why would he be afraid that a king was going to kill him? If God had made these great promises to him, why would he be afraid? Well, because in that moment, Abraham started living as if God did not exist. And so this brings up the great sort of plot twist in our lives, right? God made Abraham this awesome promise. God came into his life and chose him and picked him. But then Abraham made lots and lots of really bad mistakes. Abraham went on to turn away from the Lord at times. He went on to live a faithless life at times. He went on to live as if God didn't exist at times. And so we might imagine God's up in heaven thinking, okay, Abraham, wow, you think you can uh, live life without me? You think you can turn away from me and live like I don't exist? Fine, you know, have it your way. Go ahead, do your best. But that's not what God does. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 3, this is what God does. It says, but God came to Abimelech, who was the king who uh, had taken Abraham's wife. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Guys, this is the grace of God towards Abraham. Abraham was living like God didn't exist, and yet God still showed up in his life and protected him, cared for him, 
was gracious towards him. And see, what this teaches us is that the gracious protection of God on our way to heaven doesn't mean that bad things won't happen in our lives. (laughs) What God's gracious protection mainly means is that God will protect us from ourselves. He will protect us from our own bad decisions. God will keep us from so totally self-sabotaging that we somehow move ourselves out of his path to heaven. We are covered in his grace, which means that, guys, we will find ourselves exactly in the same position as Abraham, where although God has come to us and he's been so good to us and he's promised us so much, yet we turn away from him. We live like he doesn't exist. And so in that moment, does God disown us? Does God just turn us over and say, I'm done with you? No. He comes after us, he pursues us, and he protects us with his grace, most especially, most especially from ourselves. And so here's what this means this morning. I don't know how you came in here today. I don't know if you came in here, you know, kind of feeling like you're hot stuff, feeling like you've checked all the moral boxes this week, feeling like you've, you know, kind of killed it with your devotions and all that. But the story of Abraham humbles us. It brings us down and shows us, hey, if anyone gets to heaven, it is because of grace and grace alone. If anyone ends up in that place that God has prepared for his people, it won't be because they merited it. It will be because he gifted it. But you also may be here this morning and you know you have just totally bombed out. You have failed. You have done everything wrong. And what the story of Abraham says to you is, you are welcome into the safe arms of your father. He's looking after your life. It's not dependent on what you do. (laughs) And that is the freedom of the grace of God. So we might say that Abraham's life teaches us that the reason we end up in heaven is because of grace. But then this psalm shifts to the life of Joseph to show us what the path to heaven looks like. And so second this morning, we will get to heaven through sovereign reversal. We will get to heaven through sovereign reversal. Uh, Just like we live in a merit-based world where we sort of think, hey, you know, the good people get a leg up in life and the bad people, you know, they have to deal with their consequences and that sort of thing. We also tend to think that the people who make it in life are the people who learn how to take control. That the people who succeed in life are the people who take hold of their destinies, who get a grip on their life. And that is why the story of Joseph is such a shock to our systems. It so clearly teaches that God is in control and we are not. And it so clearly teaches that in God's wisdom, he will not take us on the path that we would have chosen for ourselves. And that's a good thing. So here's the story. Uh, Verses 16 to 22 explain it. Covers about, by the way, about 12 chapters of the book of Genesis in just a few verses here. This is the life of Joseph. Uh, Starts out talking about God. When he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he, talking about God, had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house. And ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. 
This would not have been the life that Joseph would have chosen for himself. His own brothers sold him into slavery. Then after his own brothers sold him into slavery, he was then put in prison because of a false sex abuse allegation. And he was left there to rot in prison in the prime of his life. Talk about losing control. Talk about losing a grip on your life. But then by the end of his life, there was nobody in Egypt who was more powerful and who had more authority than Joseph other than the Pharaoh. This was a reversal. This was a sovereign reversal of the greatest proportion. Now notice how throughout Psalm 105, we, it clearly teaches us the sovereignty of God. Uh, it tells us clearly that God is the one who brought the famine over the land. And it teaches us that God is the one who actually sent Joseph ahead of his brothers so that a long, long time later when they were starving to death, Joseph would be in exactly the right place to save the very brothers who had sold him into slavery. That God was sovereignly working through their sin to bring about his good purposes for his people. That even the promises that God had made to Abraham only came true because Joseph had been sent ahead to save the family in order for them to eventually be able to enter the promised land. God was sovereignly working. Joseph would not have chosen to be sold into slavery by his brothers. He would not have chosen to have a serious, false sex abuse allegation come against him. He would not have chosen to be put in prison in the prime of his life, and yet he was exactly where God wanted him to be. Not one moment of his life was in his own control, and yet not one moment of his life was out of God's control. Through these few verses, uh, we see clearly the path the path that God took Joseph on. Here it is. It's pretty simple. Suffering and then glory. Descent and then ascent. Death and then resurrection. And this is God's path for his people on their way to heaven on their way to the promised land. But this path of descent first, of suffering first, of death first, it makes us feel like we're losing control. And when you and I lose control, we tend to panic. When God sends us down, we start to you know, pull up as hard as we can. When God sends us towards death, we look for any way of escape. A few months ago, Allie and I watched this documentary about some of the 737 MAX Boeing planes that crashed a few years ago. Uh, maybe you've heard about this. There was a device, a new device that was created that was supposed to help these planes fly. But in both instances, the, me the mechanism malfunctioned, took over the plane, and started diving the nose of the plane downwards. No matter what the pilots tried to do to take over, they could not recover control of the plane. And in both instances, the plane crashed. And sadly, 346 people died in these two 
incidents that occurred. Control matters. Who's in control makes a big difference. And when God is leading us to a place that we might not want to go, the temptation that you and I have is to grab the reins. The temptation that you and I have is to try to take back control of our lives. But we have a faulty system. And so we take over and we try to grab the reins and fix where we're headed. But we only end up plummeting our lives. The harder and harder and tighter and tighter that we try to hold grip over our lives, the worse and worse and worse it gets. So here's the great plot twist in Joseph's life. (laughs) He knew that he and his family had been promised this amazing future. We learn at the end of his life, he knew where they were headed. He knew that God had told them that they were going to have this promised land. And yet his life just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And you and I, as long as we live in this world, we will follow that same path. We will lose control. We will be falsely accused. We will be misunderstood. Our lives won't take the path that we thought they should take. But we shouldn't be surprised because the same path that maps the life of Joseph is also the path of the life of Jesus. Suffering first, but then glory. Descent first, but then ascent to the right hand of God. Death first, but then a glorified resurrection. And so we will take the path of Joseph. We will take the path of Jesus. As we surrender to God, our lives won't go where we thought they were going to go. But, 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 our God is the God of sovereign reversal. Our path to heaven will end in glory. It will end in resurrection power. So we see that the way we get to heaven is by grace and that the path that we're going to take, it might be descent first, might be suffering first, it might be death first, but then it will mean glory, resurrection, life. Psalm 105 continues the story with Moses and the Israelite exodus out of Egypt. Um, If you're interested, by the way, this short psalm covers five whole books of the Bible, which is outstanding. Um, And we are going to cover the whole thing. So, wow. How do we get to heaven? Third, this morning. We'll get to heaven through a mighty deliverance. We'll get to heaven through mighty deliverance. Uh, After a few hundred years have passed since God originally made the promise to Abraham... Where God's people find themselves is as far as you could possibly imagine away from the promise. They found themselves enslaved in a foreign country under a tyrannical king who both made it his job to make their lives terrible 
and who was murdering their babies. This is where they found themselves. A people who had been promised amazing things, totally enslaved. Now, just as we intuitively, you and I think, that we somehow have to take control of our destinies, we also live in a time and place where the myth, the idea of how to get life is through some sort of self-liberation project. We know that something's wrong. We know that we're trapped. We know that there's these bad, harmful forces in our lives. And so we think the answer is to somehow break free ourselves. We think that we have to take this life that we have and make ourselves free. Here's the problem with our self-liberation project. God is in the way. (laughs) of our self-liberation project. That when we try to take matters into our own hands, when we try to set ourselves free, what we end up doing is we end up setting God himself aside. And so in an attempt to get free, we actually just put ourselves deeper and deeper into slavery. We think, we think this self-liberation project thing is working for us, but in, in reality, we are simply just jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. I read a story uh, in an article this week that I feel like taps into this uh, problem, the problem, the myth of the self-liberation narrative. And I, I want to share it with you. It says, last spring, Helena Kirshner's story of <clears throat> detransitioning made waves. Helena detailed what lured her into gender transition and how she got out. She had felt insecure about her body, and was struggling with an eating disorder. She became estranged from friends and family. A few clicks on Google opened her up to an online community ready to welcome and accept her. Eventually, she recognized that questioning her gender identity elevated her online social status even more. She changed how she dressed and started binding her chest. And when she turned 18, she began taking high doses of testosterone. Listen, listen carefully. Through all this, the refrain she heard from social workers, psychologists, and friends was that gender transition would eventually make her depression disappear. Helena writes now, however, that the real result was an even wider disconnect from understanding the conditions that led me to feel such sadness, fear, and grief. See, we know that something is not right. We know that we need to be transformed. We know that there's something off about the lives that we're living. But the temptation is to think that somehow that will be fixed by some sort of self-liberation. But all the while, the harder and harder we try, we end up making matters worse. Now, it's easy maybe to pick on something like transgenderism or something like this, but guys, we have invented endless ways to escape. We have created endless ways to try and reinvent ourselves, to try and get back the life that we know is off. And that's why the story of the Exodus 
is so important for us to see. Uh, we learn in this story that we don't get free by trying to liberate ourselves. We get free through God's gift of his mighty deliverance. Uh, let's read the story uh, that it tells in verses 25 to 38. He, again, talking about God, he turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees. He shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up their fruit of the ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. Guys, the same God who we looked at last week in Psalm 104, who is the God of creation, now turned creation upside down. The God who had made the light brought darkness over the land. The God who had made the waters turned them into blood. The God who had perfectly and harmoniously created all the wonderful creatures and species that we know work together in perfect unison, he caused them to move in utter chaos and to lead to destruction. The God who had given man the breath of life reached down and took it away. This was God's mighty deliverance of his people. He put all the false Egyptian gods to shame, and he proved that he was the one true God. He, in a sense, you might say, decreated Egypt in order to recreate Israel. God took the firstborn of Egypt in order to give life, to give freedom to the nation who he called his own firstborn, Israel. Here's the difficult thing when we look at the story of the Exodus. The only way that God's people were going to end up in the land that he had promised them was for them to be set free. And you and I find ourselves in the same exact position. We are enslaved to sin. We are enslaved under the tyranny of Satan. We live in an environment that is conducive to that slavery. And that's why the self-liberation project actually has the ability to get a foothold in our lives. Because we know something's not right. We are slaves. We are broken. We do need to be transformed. But what the Exodus shows us is that it won't come through self-liberation. It will come through God's mighty deliverance. 
And that is exactly what he has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. The rescue, the freedom, the emancipation of Israel out of, the, out of Egypt simply prefigured the greater and more important exodus that sinners would get to receive from freedom of their sin through Jesus Christ. That just as Pharaoh's firstborn son was killed so that Israel could be set free, God's firstborn son would be killed so that you and I could be set free. That if Egypt had to be decreated in order that Israel could be recreated, what we see is that Jesus Christ himself went down into death, was resurrected so that you and I could be made new. Guys, we will be made new. We are made new through Jesus Christ. But it's God's mighty deliverance. It's not something that we do ourselves. It's His transforming power. It's His transforming love. Uh, Here's a question I want you guys to consider today. Meditate on, maybe talk over lunch or at home when you get home. What showed God's power more? When God rescued Israel out of the slavery of Egypt or when God rescues a sinner out of the slavery of their sin? Let me say it one more time so you can, I want, I want you to think about this today. Meditate on this. Chew on this. Have a conversation over lunch. What shows God's power more? Rescuing Israel out of the slavery of Egypt or rescuing a sinner out of the slavery of their sin? Uh, I think that would be great meditation for you for the rest of the day. So here's what we're seeing. Here's what we're seeing. We can't get to heaven through a meritocracy. It's not doing more good things and bad things. It's not who lives a moral life and who doesn't. That's not how we get to heaven. We also can't get heaven by sort of taking control, taking the reins of our lives, grabbing hold of our destinies. We also can't get to heaven by some sort of self-liberation project where we just try to get ourselves free of anything that's oppressive or anything that's hard or difficult in our lives. And what we're going to see finally from this psalm is that we can't get to heaven through materialism. And so forth this morning, finally, how do we get to heaven? We will get to heaven through daily provision. We'll get to heaven through daily provision. Uh, Based on the way you and I act and live, you would think that we think we can somehow create heaven on earth through accumulating material possessions and storing up mountaintop experiences. That's pretty much how we live. We think, "I'm I'm going to form a little piece of heaven on earth by just getting as much stuff as I possibly can and by experiencing the most amazing things that I possibly can. And that's what makes Israel's wandering in the wilderness such an important thing for us. See, no matter how much we try to accumulate, no matter how many experiences we run after, we will be just as empty. Can't fill the void. But look how God cared for his people with daily provision on their way to the promised land. Verses 39 to 41 say it like this. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. So Here's the weird thing about the the Exodus. God brings his people out of Egypt, and they cross over the the Dead Sea. 
And they go into not the promised land. They go into the wilderness, a dry and barren place where not even their basic needs are met. A few million people with no food and no water. But this is what God's people learn in the wilderness. This is what God's people learn when they're in a dry and barren place. God can bring the promised land to you. When God broke the rock open so that water would flow, when God rained down quail and bread from heaven to care for his people, he was showing that while they weren't yet in the promised land, he could bring the promised land to them. While they weren't in heaven yet, they weren't to the final place yet, God could bring the final place to them to sustain them on their journey to the place that they were headed. I spent a few summers uh, in my college years working uh, at a summer camp. It's really the only time in my life, you know, where I've spent a significant amount of time away from home, like really home. Like, you know, you, you actually have a place that you live, but you're away for a few months kind of thing. And, uh, you know, while I was there, I, you know, I wanted to, to kind of feel like home a little bit. And so I brought some things with me. Uh, some of y'all know I like to play music, so I, I brought my guitar with me. Uh, I brought some pictures of people, you know, that I want to remember that, that sort of remind me of home. Uh, I even brought, my, you know, my own pillow and blankie, you know, I wanted to feel like oh, I'm in my own bed, you know, kind of thing. Uh, Allie and I at the time, who's now my wife, we were dating, and um, we were apart, you know, oh man, we were apart two whole summers. Oh. So we wrote letters back and forth, and uh, even though we weren't, you know, technically in the same place, it was like getting one of those letters just sort of felt like she was right there, just sort of felt like I got to experience her in a way, even though we weren't physically present. Uh, maybe if anything, it just sort of heightened our excitement to finally be back together again. Well, guys, this is the secret of the Christian life, that while we aren't in heaven yet, God brings heaven to us. That while we aren't yet there in our final place where all will be well and there will be this peace and there will be flourishing and we will be safe in our heavenly Father's arms, God brings heaven to earth. Uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, when Jesus arrived, Jesus specifically told us, that he was the true bread that God had sent from heaven. Jesus specifically told us that he was the water from the rock that came to satisfy our souls. We got to see heaven come to earth in Jesus Christ. And after Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead and was ascended back to the right hand of the Father, guess what he did? He sent his spirit to come and live in the hearts of anyone who would put their trust in him. We aren't in heaven yet, but Jesus sends heaven to us. If we seek to satisfy our souls through accumulating material possessions or running after mountaintop experiences, if we dump all that we can possibly dump up to the whole world, we will be just as empty. Home will be just as elusive. But we have this Father, this Heavenly Father, who knows exactly what we need. 
He's promised to get us there. And in his goodness, the, the fire and the cloud that you see here that comes with them, that represents God's own presence. Guys, the best thing about heaven is God himself. And he gives us himself now. Yes, we still live in this broken world. Yes, we still turn away from him at times. Yes, we aren't quite where we're headed yet. But in the meantime, God has brought the best part of the final home to us now. And this is how the story ends in verses 43 and 44 of this psalm. It says, So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. God had made a promise, and God kept his promise. Guys, how do we get to heaven? It is not through our merit. It is not through living a good life and sort of working up to God's standards. It is not through taking control of our lives and making sure that we manage all the chaos. It is not through some sort of self-liberation project where we reinvent ourselves and we transform ourselves and we throw off all the bonds of anything terrible or hard in our lives. And it is certainly not through the accumulation of material possessions or mountaintop experiences. How do we get to heaven? Get to heaven because we have a wonderful God who has promised to get us there. And if he has made that promise, he will keep that promise. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts long, long for the final day when we do fully, completely Enjoy that, that home that you've prepared for us. That place that Jesus talked about going to prepare for us. But God, right now in the meantime, we are so thankful for your daily provision. We are so thankful that in your goodness, you give us the most important thing of our future home right now, which is you. Lord, help us to marvel at what you've done Help us to marvel at the way you're sovereignly working over our lives, the way that even though we are so prone to self-sabotage, you remain committed to us. God, thank you, thank you, thank you that we can trust that you will get us home. Help our hearts to rest in you, to enjoy you. Lord, and even now, to take advantage all that you've given us and all that you've shown us in your word. Lord, as we walk out this morning, would we have settled in our hearts that you are faithful. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.